Hi, this is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth Podcast number 876 with Eric Mazel about his new book entitled The Power of Daily Practice, How Creative and Performing Artists and Everyone Else Can Finally Meet Their Goals. This podcast number 876 is brought to you by Sarah Payton, the author of a new book entitled Your Resonant Self-Workbook, From Self-Sabotage to Self-Care. In my interview with Sarah, we explore the neurosciences of self-care and how we're wired to tell ourselves self-sabotaging stories that don't allow us to become what we're capable of becoming. If you want to learn more about Sarah and her new workbook, please visit her website at sarahpeyton.com. That's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H-P-E-Y-T-O-N.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with author Eric Mazel as we talk about his new book entitled The Power of Daily Practice, How Creative and Performing Artists and Everyone Else Can Finally Meet Their Goals. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Eric, as I do every time, I think I'm a broken record, but people hear this. I have to thank the people that keep coming in, listening to the podcast from around the world. United States is number one, Canada is number two, Great Britain's number three, and then all the other countries make up the rest. But we love what we've grown, over 300,000 people, and it's because of authors like you. And today we have Eric Mazel joining us from Walnut Creek. You're in Walnut Creek, is that right? I'm in Walnut Creek, California. There, there you go. Walnut Creek, California. Uh, here is one of his most current books. He has over 50 books, but I'm going to read a little bit about him. It's called The Power of Daily Practice, How Creative and Performing Artists, and quote everyone else, because there's a lot of everyone else is listening to my show, can finally meet their goals, uh, The Power of Daily Practice. And I really, Eric, want to acknowledge you because a lot of people talk about oh, you know, how do you get to the goal? The question is, what gets in the way of it? And daily practices are the things that can help you navigate that. And let me tell my listening audience a tad bit about you. Uh, Dr. Eric Mazel is the author of more than 50 books. His interests include creativity, the creative life, and the professional uh, profession of creative coaching. Well, he focuses on issues of life purpose and meaning, mental health and, and critical psychology, also known as critical psychiatry and anti, anti-psychiatry, is that it? And parenting in the mental disorder age. His most recent books include Redesigning Your Mind, Transformational Journaling for Coaches, Therapists, and Clients, The Power of Daily Practice, which we're talking about right now, Lighting the Way with, uh, Within, Helping Parents of Diagnosed Distressed and Difficult Children, and the list goes on and on and on. There's 50 of them. If you type them in Amazon, you're going to see all the books. He writes Rethinking Mental Health Blog for Psychiatry Psychology Today and is a regular contributor to MAD in America, where he founded and edited its parent resource a section. As we said, Dr. Mazel lives in Walnut Creek, and he spends his time between Belmont, California, and uh, Walnut Creek taking care of his grandkids when he's not writing. So that's a good bio. And yeah, it's a great bio. And I want to start off, you and I have been going through this, and you talk about the elements of practice. 
And I think number one, you obviously with creatives, co- having coached creatives and working with creatives, creatives for the most part, I just did a show with uh, Dr. John Raddy on ADHD 2.0. And you having a background in all this understand that a lot of creatives are scattered. They're all over the place. <laughs> their minds, that's the way their minds work. Would you say that the daily practices could really help people who might find themselves? Because a lot of my people listening are entrepreneurs and they're wild and crazy and they're all over the place. So the question is, can your daily practices help somebody who already been diagnosed with ADHD? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That is one of the challenges. What that means is you need some kind of ceremonial work before you start your daily practice, some ceremonial calming work, whether that's a certain kind of deep breathing or a certain kind of cognitive thinking or whatever it is, you do have to get yourself a little bit settled, get your racing mind settled. And that's the kind of work you would have to do. That settling work is the kind of work you would have to do to get anything done in your life if you are scattered or anxious or rushing around. That's a, That natural calming work has to happen. The reason that daily practice is so important, especially for creative performing artists, is that it doesn't really matter if you miss a day in life. We all miss a day. But if you start to miss a couple of days, folks lose days, weeks, months, and years of their life. Suddenly, they're, they're nowhere near writing their novel or nowhere near getting their business built. So that's that's the slippery slope of not having a daily practice, is that after you miss two days or three days, suddenly two months have vanished You've done everything else on your to-do list except the real things in your life, and you're a bit lost and, of course, disappointed and maybe despairing. So daily practice is an antidote to the way that folks lose huge chunks of time when they don't get their work done. Well, you know, you talk about initiation and simplicity, and you have 20 of these um, as what you call the elements of practice. Uh, so to me, that's a subset. And usually it isn't sometimes the daily practice. It's what gets in the way of the daily practice. And you address that kind of at the end of the book as well. But let's talk about, if we can, just initiation, simplicity, and a few of these. Um, obviously, initiation, just the word itself, uh, kind of connotates what it is. Um, Sure, it's yeah. about getting started. What getting- would you tell people, though, that have a hard time? Um, look, you've written 50 books, so there couldn't be anybody better to know about initiation than you. Well, we have, to, we have to go to a deep place, really, uh, especially in these times, I would say, but at any time. We have to go to a deep place to answer the question of why bother? Because that's a question that people, contemporary people, have trouble answering. Why bother take another photograph or write another poem or work on their novel, or why bother? If we're just excited matter passing through the universe and nobody really cares about us, et cetera, et cetera, we have lots of reasons for, for not bothering and not caring and not feeling like we matter. So I go to this place with clients immediately of, let's make this shift from the idea that there's some purpose to life, the idea that there's a life purpose, to the idea of life purposes, You get to choose your life purposes, and you better do that. You better choose your life purposes. You better decide what's important to you. Those important things then become 
your daily or regular practices. And you are doing them not to be productive or not to be creative, but because you want to live your life purposes. You want to live a meaningful life. You want to live an authentic life. It's in that context that people can kind of recover their ability to practice because unless they're motivated in that deep sense of donning donning the mantle of meaning makers, saying to themselves, I make the meaning in my life. If I don't, life won't feel meaningful. If I'm seeking meaning, I'm in trouble. I should be making my meaning in a daily way. And this is this kind of effort, this kind of daily effort is the way that I make my meaning each day. So that's, that's a long-winded way of saying I have to place the idea of daily practice in this deep place of either you're living your life authentically or you aren't. Well, and I've heard this said, you know, I've had Stephen Kotler on. There's a lot of people, neuroscientists, that really delve into what's going on inside the brain, the neurochemicals that are released, uh, endorphins, and so on. Uh, and one of the things that always intrigues me about this is is that in these daily practices of people that, whether they're in flow or whatever you want to call it, let's just say they're in flow. Now they get into deep flow, especially creatives. You know, he said something to me. He said, you know, look, focus is for free. Well, focus is for free if you can get focused. The second thing he said is curiosity. I think most creatives are extremely curious. Uh, and they have to take the curiosity and then find two or three passions that can be strung together before they define that purpose. And then that purpose can be set into a goal, and the goal can have subset goals or proximal goals. And then you got to get into grit and determination because the reality is sometimes you don't get all the way through that. So here's my question. If focus is for free and I'm curious, how would you recommend to somebody out there to stay on track to see it through because I find that they start something and then they start something else and they don't finish it and the projects don't get done. Is the daily practice to help them to get it done? The straightforward headline is to show up and not attach to outcomes. We're very outcome driven culture. The transcendentalist hundreds of years ago said that the, the American mandate was progress and their image was the upward spiral. We're always supposed to be making progress. Right. Daily practice is opposite from progress. It's about presence and showing up each day. And if you think you should be making progress each day, you'll stop your practice pretty soon because on many days you're not making progress. That's you're an important point, Eric. That's a very important point. Is yep. If they've already bought into what society is telling them progress is supposed to be, and that's that's ground into the the wiring, fiber, the right. fiber of culture, right? Then these daily practices of simplicity, of you know, journaling, meditation, all the there's lots of yep. them. I mean, you got twenty lots of them here, but huh? Playfulness, right. I think, is probably one of the bigger biggest ones. I don't think we play enough. So, if you would comment about playfulness. As it relates to the, a daily, it's an element of the daily practice because sure. you know, think about it. Most people are sitting there in front of their computer or they got their headsets on. They're trying to write a book. They're doing whatever. That isn't play. No, it's not play. So let me come at that from the following angle. All day long, we're supposed to get things right. That's, that's our duty in life. I drive on the correct side of the road, pick up the kids at three, mow the grass. 
And then for creatives, the time is supposed to come where you have real permission, not, not just intellectual permission, but visceral permission to make mistakes and messes, to be a three-year-old imagining things, to, to marry a, a salmon in a skyscraper and come up with a salmon-shaped skyscraper, to really imagine, to really be free, to really play. It's very hard for most people to make that transition from the way they're supposed to be all day long getting things right to this other way of having real permission to make mistakes and messes. You can't really play if you're trying to get things right. They're different energies. So my way of thinking about it is that people need a ceremonial bridge away from, away, away from moving from their everyday mind to this other space, this daily practice space. And for me, that ceremonial bridge is a little deep breathing and dropping in a right thought. And the right thought is I'm completely stopping. That is, I'm completely stopping my need to get things right. Because people have to make this shift before they can move to getting getting to work on their novel or what have you. Without that shift, they're just going to keep going through their daily to-do list of getting things right and never find that moment where they really have a chance to play or get things wrong. It's a good point. And the key is building the bridge to be able to do that. And I think to allow yourself to do it because the wiring is so deeply ingrained, right? To go play, go do something during the day that's playful, that's fun, uh, that's going to stimulate that creativity. I remember uh, the guy at um, uh, Patagonia, he always used to tell his people, you know, I don't keep track of your time. He said, go out and go surf, go do what you want, but we need the creativity in here. Um, So if that's what stimulates your brain, to actually have these breakthroughs, because look, innovation, creativity, whatever you want to call it, comes as a result of someone giving, allowing themselves the opportunity to think in a different way. I'm not talking about critical thinking skills now. I'm talking about this playful, fun area that we can actually derive yeah, new so, ideas from. Yeah, let, let's take a big idea here. So... If if meaning is a psychological experience, which I believe it is, it's not something out there like a lost wallet or something. Meaning is a certain kind of psychological experience, and therefore it comes and goes naturally. The idea that life should always feel meaningful is kind of a goofy idea, just as much as the idea is that life should always be joyful or life should be always anything. So given that, that means that a lot of the time we're doing our work, a lot of the time we're in our daily practice, we're not going to be experiencing meaning. That's a very mature position to do your work, even if it's not feeling meaningful. Well, if it's not feeling meaningful, how are you going to sit there? If it feels just tiresome and, and, and grungy and grubby, how are you going to sit there? Well, you have to generate your own sense of joy, your own sense of spontaneity. You have to light, keep, the, keep the flame of desire kindled yourself. We have to do this work. It's kind of odd to think that we have to do the work to be joyous. But we do. And I think the joy comes from, Pavarotti has a quote I like. People say I'm disciplined. It's not discipline. It's devotion. And there's a big difference. You call it self-direction, which is one of yours. Yeah. Yep. So, So we have discipline on the one hand, but we have this other feeling tone thing of devotion. If you're a spiritual person, you'd be holding it one way. If you're a non-spiritual person, you'd be holding it another way. But still there's that sense of all of the synonyms of love, enthusiasm, curiosity, passion. You've already named some of these words. They're all in the same family. 
And we have to bring, it's not there automatically. We have to bring the passion. Mm-hmm. It's like we have to run from our bed to the computer, so to speak, with our own passion. Because if we walk slowly, we're going to start walking more and more slowly until we end up turning in a different direction away from our novel. Mm-hmm. Right. So, look, there are uh, 20 of these. And then you speak about the varieties of daily practice. And I, I, because that's kind of an integration, and you call it, one of them is practice too, you call it your recovery practice. Um, speak with us, would it, if you would, about this recovery practice, because there are many of these, like you just mentioned, um, we know family members who talk about yep. craving, obsession, compulsion, dependency, addiction, whatever. Um, speak with us about the recovery, because when you talk recovery, you're usually talking about something on the opposite side, which is addiction. Um, Addicted to something to get rid of it. (laughs) Yep. So as folks who know 12-step programs know, one of the ideas of 12-step programs is first things first, one day at a time. The idea that you have to pay attention to the work you're doing in recovery to make sure that you don't slip on every given, any given day. It's not something you can push off to the side and so to speak, forget about. You have to remember that you are whatever it is you are drinking alcoholically or whatever, whatever your challenge is, you have to every day realize that you're trying to deal with that challenge. And that's why the idea of recovery marries naturally with the idea of daily practice. It's something we should be thinking about every day. For creatives, a recovery practice is interesting because it, in a way, flies in the face of a creativity practice. Because the the tasks of early recovery are to stay calm and to not be too ambitious, not to generate a lot of energy in yourself, not to start getting your engine whirring. Whereas for a creative person, that's exactly what that creative person wants to do. Mm That's a long, it's a long-winded way of saying in early recovery, creatives have to be less ambitious than they want to be. If you think about it, you've been drinking alcoholically, you've been falling down, you haven't been writing your novel. Now suddenly you're in early recovery, you have 20 days of sobriety. Now you want to suddenly get to your novel with its 23 characters. Well, actually, you'd kind of better turn to a short story than your novel with 23 characters. It's better to be modest there in early recovery in terms of the tasks you set yourself than to be suddenly immodest and narcissistic and grandiose and all those words and suddenly think that because you have 17 days of recovery behind you, you're now equal to doing a lot of this energetic work. So I think you could see how... You're just saying smaller steps if you're in that state to be able to get there. This is a way that these practices go together, so to speak, because you can have your daily creativity practice where, where you do rev up, maybe followed by or preceded by your recovery practice where you do your big book work if you're working a 12-step program. Whatever it is that amounts to your recovery program, this gives you your daily way of attending to that. Yeah, and you know, along that line, we we touched on it just a tad bit, but I do want to cover it is your life purpose practice. Um, Now, we said, you said, and I concurred, uh, that defining that life purpose is really important. I think a lot of people go throughout life without ever having identified their life purpose. Or if they don't, if they haven't defined it, they certainly don't know how to live it. Um, I would say that your um, 
fostering a mistake <laughs> in talking about life purpose, because I don't think there is a singular purpose to life. And people who look for it their whole life long are looking for something that does not exist. The second you move from life purpose to life purposes, to multiple things being important, to your kids being important and your activism being important and your service being important and your career being important. In other words, that you have a menu of life purposes, then you can organize your day around your life purposes. Suddenly you have a way of actually making actionable your life purposes. If you stick with the idea of life purpose, I think you don't know where to go with it. Good point. There isn't any place to go with it. Well, obviously, there's purposes in all of those, let's call them categories or silos. Yep. I would agree with you on that. Um, if, if you know, you, there's a lot of talk inside companies, and all, a lot of the people that listen to the show are part of larger companies working as entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and employees. Um, and there isn't always an alignment between what they'd like to do and what they're actually doing. Uh, yep. if, if you know what I mean, that's just why we have such low engagement. Um, what would you, what advice would you give somebody on a practice in that way? Cause you did say earlier, Hey, look, you just have to find a way to do this stuff and find joy from it, regardless of what it is, right? Whatever the practice is, it's going to help you to find joy from that kind of work. Um, yep. so so there, there are many things to say. I think the numbers are 70 to 80% of the American workforce hate their job, some number like that. It is. It's like it's very high. Yeah. It's a, it's a serious issue. There, there are two basic thrusts to an answer. One is, can anything different happen at work? Can work be made more meaningful or easier or better? There's that question. But then there's the exit strategy dash is there another path to, path to take dash? Can you be doing something else meaningful at another time of the day that makes the meaninglessness of work a little less painful? So there are two separate visions. One is, can I make work better? And the other is, can I have a different work that is better? Mm-hmm. And if a person pays attention to both of those things, if you discern that you can't make work better and you don't want to burn out and you don't want to die and you don't have an ulcer, you don't want this then you have to get out of it, right? If you're if you're a sensible human being, even though it's it's your ticket, still you will have to get out of it because you don't want it to kill you. So you have to be thinking of that other way of making a living that better suits you, that that is better for you. Right. right. So that's that's the the program is to look at those two things. Can I make work better? If I can, that's what I should do, of course. Can I make work better? And is there better work? And I, you know, it's interesting because I just did an interview with Rusty Gelliard. He was the worldwide finance director for Apple. And after many, many years at Apple, he uh, decided that uh, first off, they, they wanted to promote him to, a, to a, even a higher position. And he tried it for a while and he, it ended up taking so much of his time yep. and so much from his family that he then stepped back into the old position. And he founded a dead-end job. So he quit one day and became a transformational coach. And all the people at Apple, many of them were like, wow, you're really a fool. You have the world by the tail here. And then no. some of them were very interested uh, yeah, and, 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 and envious <laughs> and, and envious. yet to say, hey, this guy had the balls. Now, he, he ultimately went through a divorce and things happened in his life. Sure. And he sure. had the pains and sufferings associated with 
that, but he said it was the best decision he ever made. And I think the the most important thing is is as this is um, it's like the sand inside the oyster that creates the pearl. Yep. You know, there you get agitated over time, and as you said, don't get sick by it. Yep. Finally, open up the pearl and see the oyster that's there, yep. which is you. Um, one of the one of the practices that I describe is is what I call a warrior practice. Because a lot of people intellectually know that they have to take a certain kind of risk. They just don't want it to feel risky. Right. In, in their body, they, they know intellectually, I should get out of this job and I should do this. I should try this thing that I'm not sure is going to work. They just don't like the feeling of, of how that's going to feel to try that. That's why I think a daily warrior practice is actually, and lots of people have been responding to that particular practice as something that they know they need for themselves. They know they need to try things that, that are scary, but that, that will make a huge positive difference in their life were they to work out. So that's, a, that's another wrinkle on the idea of daily practice, the idea of a warrior practice. Well, you know, you cover three sections in this book, and the third section is really the common obstacles to maintaining a daily practice. Um, where we've talked about the elements We've talked about the practices, and now we're talking about the obstacles to maintain it. I think this last part, three, that's the most challenging part. Sure. Um, and and it always is. I, I wrote a book on intuition, and I showed how people go from intuition to innovation. And the last part to implementation of whatever it is you've developed yep. creatively yep. is probably the most difficult managing your energy to get there is even the bigger challenge is how are you going to manage this energy and i i'd like to ask you this question because uh you each of those challenges uh you say 18 of them can be handled the first one is mindset and and this one of all of them is the one that kind of is the i don't know it's the springboard for yep. everything, because if you don't have the right mindset, it doesn't matter uh, no. one or the other. So speak with us, if you would, sure. about the mindset that people need to keep. I want to mention to all my listeners that in every one of these chapters, there's food for thought. So what Eric gives you is four to five questions to be thinking, to reflect upon. And on this one, are you regularly challenged by your mindset? Are you specifically challenged by your mindset when it comes to your daily practice? And what might you try to meet the challenge? I love the questions because they're very stimulating. Uh, so this will also preview, I think, another chat that we'll have down the road for another book I have coming out called Redesign Your Mind. And that, that comes out in a bit. And so you change your, your mindset by literally changing your mind, which sounds crazy. How do you do that? Well, <laughs> if you visualize your mind as a room, if you use that metaphor, the room that is your mind, and you go in there, so to speak, again, metaphorically, and make changes like install windows so a breeze can blow through or repaint the walls so they're no longer dingy gray, but bright white or whatever it might be, remove that bed of nails that you sleep on and, and put in an easy chair. These are, these are all metaphors, but they're metaphors that speak to the idea that you can change the insides of your mind, at least to the extent of visualizing difference and having a more positive, calm. For instance, visualize a calmness switch that you flip 
when you were talking about the energy needed to do the work, well, this is one of those tricks or tactics to have to be in the right place energetically is to flip a condom, calm the switch and decide to be calmer, decide that there'll be fewer dramas in your life, decide that there'll be less histrionics and all of that. So these different visualizations of flipping a calmness switch or repainting the walls or installing uh, installing windows or whatever whatever the visualization is speaks to an idea that we can actually think about our current mindset and make changes. It's not actually that hard to visualize the change. It's again, as you were you were saying, just kind of the willingness or or taking the time to do that kind of thing. In conversations with people, they discover that they can repaint their walls in a split second and and suddenly feel a little less depressed or despairing just by suddenly having um, yellow walls rather than gray walls. It sounds not too exciting as an idea, but in fact, it it works wonders if a person is willing to try it. Well, it... It, what I find is, you know, when you, you talk about these elements and then you talk about the practices and you talk about the obstacles and the subtitle of this is to finally meet your goals. Um, again, a goal is defined in the mind by the vision to say, I've got to get there. Now, that doesn't mean that it was influenced by the outside world. Maybe it was influenced by something that brings you pleasure. Frequently, I find people are chasing goals that are not pleasurable. Uh, and it doesn't mean just monetary goals. It just means goals. Uh, you know, let's take, for instance, the correlation between somebody saying you're going to lose 30 pounds and what you have to do to lose 30 pounds. What steps need to be taken to lose that 30 pounds? And frequently, they see the gap as being too much. So they never start. Or if they do start, they get sidetracked because it's so easy to see that piece of cake or that pie or that whatever it is to do that. What advice would you have that around meaningful, meaningful and heartfelt and sincere goals that one would write in harmony with their life uh, to actually say, hey, my ego beats up on me enough. I'm enough the way I am. Uh, because I find that frequently that is the problem. Well, one of the things I would say for my creative clients who are trying to decide about their goals is to remember what they loved when they were five or six or seven. Mm -hmm. I think those are the truest loves actually, and, and, and actually stay with us our whole lives. If we remember sitting in a corner reading a book at the age of five and being transported somewhere. Well, that's the motivation to write our novel. It's not about bestsellerdom or what have you. It's to give someone else that experience, some other five-year-old or 35-year-old, the experience of being transported by a book. It might have been a movie we saw in a darkened theater, and now we want to be a cinematographer. So, So this is just one piece of a puzzle, but one piece of the puzzle is to reconnect with or get back, back in touch with our most genuine loves. And I think those loves were really spontaneous. No one, no one told us to love a book or no one told us to love a movie. Just when that TV came on and the movie started, we, we fell in love with what we were seeing. So that, that's one piece of this puzzle is to organize your goals around your, your, your 
almost almost want to say ancient loves or, or youthful loves or childhood loves because those are probably good guideposts for for what to set as goals now. Yeah, I uh, there's a, a gentleman who just wrote an article on fast goals, F A S T goals. That's a new term that's running around out there. And interesting, he owns a company called Goalscape, which has a software for goal setting goals. And your book says to finally meet their goals. Um, what I find interesting is, is where he derived this from was he's an, was an Olympic sailor, still is, was just in Tokyo. Um, but you look at people who've set their goal on winning gold or set their goal on winning bronze or silver, or whatever it might be in the Olympics. If you look at the correlation about someone who has to actually set, practice, remove obstacles from obtaining a goal, it couldn't be any more uh, uh, indicative of an Olympic athlete. Uh, We just went through this Olympics. Um, What comment would you make to the average individual? I'm going to say average. Let's just say the individual listening, who most of them have never won Olympic gold medal, have never had that kind of desire, drive, ambition, uh, whatever it takes to get there. What advice would you give them around this power of daily practice? Well, I have a simple um, mantra or life purpose statement that uh, animates me, and that's do the next right thing. It's a very simple idea, but it's it's not about being goal-oriented, and it's also not about being process-oriented. It's about sort of retaining a picture of how you want your life to go ethically, emotionally, business-wise in all ways, and then not going down rabbit holes, not thinking thoughts that don't serve you, not doing a lot of things that keep you from doing the next right thing, right as you define it. So that simple idea of doing the next right thing, I think can keep a person on track as an idea and as a model. And the next right thing with respect to the book would would be your next practice, but it would also be relaxing, not going to the not going to a next practice, but allowing yourself to be in meaning neutral, so to speak, for a while, not pestering yourself about accomplishments and goals. And then moving right on to the next goal-oriented thing, getting your novel done. That movement from one kind of state, a just showing up state to another kind of state. We take as two metaphors a garden. If you let a garden do whatever it wants to do, that's a certain kind of process, and you'll get weeds or you'll get whatever. If you want to get food from your garden, you have to do another kind of process called cultivation. They're both genuine process. One is goal-oriented. You want food for, you, for the table. The other is not goal-oriented. It's, it's the garden doing it, whatever it wants to do. Human beings need both processes. They need goal-oriented process. Sometimes you're after something like food for the table, and sometimes you want to be in a certain way or you want to be blue sky, you want to be open to the universe, however you want to say that. I think a mature person has a way of moving from one to the other of those two kinds of processes through the day and having a very goal-oriented hour, and then a very, so to speak, relaxed hour, and then back to work, and then back to something else. I think that's a vision that I'm trying to promote in the book, is that, yes, there are daily practices, but this is also part of a way of negotiating your day and negotiating your life, 
so that you're both getting the things done that you want to get done, but also relaxing. Well, I'm so pleased that you put it in that context and use that analogy because it, it you know, look, it's a very visual way to look at um, how you can lead your life, whether you choose to do it that way. I think for many listeners, um, it's they're very goal driven. You know, this is this show is called Inside Personal Growth. So the term growth in of itself has a connotation that if you're not growing, you're getting rotten, right? So, and I don't mean that uh, sarcastically. What I mean is that, you know, this time to to regenerate and recoup and, uh, you know, kind of restart your engines and find new ways of doing things is really the whole point of the book, <laughs> okay? Um, or, or, and, or, or, or hold your child's hand, you yeah. know? That's you don't have to grow to do that. You don't have to have a goal there, right? You just you just you just want to enjoy that. That that's as deep as it gets. Holding your child's hand, crossing the street, or something, or things like that are as important as anything under the sun. Well, you know, it's it's is simplistic. Um, I, I tell people this because for a period of time in my life, I raised money for a nonprofit called Terry, which dealt with. Down syndrome and autistic kids. And here's what I'll say is every day that I would walk in there and I'd raise money to build this big building, the Down syndrome kids would always greet you with a big hug and a and a smile. And they never had a bad day. I mean, yep. literally, they, well, there wasn't a bad day. Um, but there was something about the warmth and love that came from them. And I would say something to the world that if Everybody act a little bit more like a Down syndrome kid would probably be in a much better place uh, because of the amount of uh, compassion and love that they've got to give. Um, Yes, they have limited capacity to understand certain things, but the reality is it was wonderful. And I think the most important element of me saying that is that if you can take time to actually impart or be part of that process of holding your child's hand or having compassion or having a loving moment or helping a person across the street. I know it sounds kind of silly because you don't see that yeah. happening very much anymore, but whatever that compassion and outreach is, I found that that the outreach itself in of itself is so um, emotionally and healthy reward. It's, it, it improves your health. Yeah. Yep. You know? So any last words you have, uh, Eric, about the book, practices, challenges that you'd like to impart on our listeners? Well, because I work with creative performing artists primarily, um, I like to remind them that the issue isn't losing a day here or there. It's that if you don't become very consistent and regular in your practice, you really won't get your work done. You'll lose an awful lot of time. A decade will go by, you'll be disappointed, and you won't exactly know how it was that you didn't get your novel written or your paintings painted. So it's not so much daily practice. It's the idea of regular, persistent, every day, as close to everyday practice as you can get for the sake of uh, doing the things that really matter to you. Well, that's a good way to sum this up. And for my listeners, you can see my little notes here. Uh, This is Eric Mazel. 
PhD. His book is The Power of Daily Practice. This is a New World Library book. Also, we will have um, a link to the Amazon so that you can pick up a copy. We'll have a link to Eric's website as well. Like I said, he's an author of 50 books. I'm sure you can find other that Eric's have written. We'll be doing another interview with him shortly when his new book comes out. And what's the title of that book, Eric? Redesign Your Mind. So Redesign Your Mind. And that's where all this starts. (laughs) You have to redesign the mind first. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Namaste to you. And thanks for uh, spending the time speaking with my listeners. Thank you for having me.